I'm your host, Stephen Gutteridge, and welcome to Mid-South Moments. We welcome a very special guest host to Mid-South Moments this week, semi-retired pro wrestling manager and also owner of the fascinating Charleston Territories website, Al Getz, which is at Al Getz Wrestling on Twitter. Welcome to Mid-South Moments. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for having me. I, I like the very special guest host. That makes me feel uh, incredibly important. Um, but the reality is I'm not. I'm just a fan of wrestling. I'm just a fan of Mid-South, and I'm also a fan of statistics, and I've somehow managed to combine those into something unique, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, but we also want to talk about one of the most very special episodes of Mid-South Wrestling that has ever aired. Yeah, a really, really interesting is probably one way to put it, maybe slightly bizarre in another way, but we'll, we'll certainly get on to that. So, Al, you're, you're in the Atlanta region uh, now. Have you always been around that, that sort of area? Have you, have you moved around a bit? I grew up in New York. In fact, when I first started uh, being a wrestling manager, which was in the mid-1990s, my name was the Duke of New York. But over time, that uh, changed and evolved. And I spent uh, my late 20s sort of traveling uh, throughout the East Coast, moved down south, uh, first to Philly, then to Pittsburgh, then to North Carolina, then to Nashville, then a detour to Northern California. And I moved to Atlanta in 2003, and I've been happily here ever since. So we're going to jump around a little bit, but question. Uh, so WrestleMania 27 was at the Georgia Dome, wasn't it? So were you in attendance for that one? I was not, I was not in attendance. The only WrestleMania I attended live was WrestleMania 30. And that was not the plan. I was in Biloxi, Mississippi, which is, uh, known for its casinos. And I had lost a ton of money. Uh, and I was scheduled to stay there for a couple more days, so I decided there's no point in going back to the casino. What else is nearby going on this weekend that I could do? And New Orleans was a little over an hour away, and it's like, oh, WrestleMania 30. I found a not cheap, but very reasonably priced floor seat uh, and just snatched it up and went. But I also, the first three WrestleManias... I went to the closed circuit screenings of those. Uh, this was ah. in the early days of pay-per-view. So WrestleMania 1 was in Madison Square Garden I, in New York City. I actually watched it on closed circuit in the Nassau Coliseum, which is... Oh, how incredible. So tell me all about that. So how many people... What, what sort of... So how old were you then? I know you shouldn't listen to an ungentleman, un- 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 unkind... Question. What sort of, what sort of age are you? It's all right. In, uh, in, Mar- on March 31st, 1985, I was 14 years old. I, okay. I, I just turned 49 uh, a week or so ago. And because of the world situation, uh, celebrated it by sitting at home, uh, eating a salad. Oh, well. It could have been <laughs> so, worse, I suppose, couldn't it? Yeah. It could have been something worse than a salad. So tell me about that Nassau, uh, Coliseum experience then. Cause that must have, was, was it quite full for that first WrestleMania? What was the, what was the experience like? And was I, that the first time you saw something on closed circuit? That was the first time I saw something on closed circuit. I, I, you know, this was so long ago, I don't remember specifics, but I want to say the arena was sort of cut off in half and, and, and so that they had the screen sort of where the ring would have been in the center of the arena, but only half the arena, you know, was able to sit and watch the screen. I don't know that it was jam packed, but it was very, but it was very full. Okay. What sort of, I know this is ridiculous. What sort of screen size? Are we talking cinema screens? I presume they wheeled this thing. It was, something. I, my recollection, again, I was a kid and this was 30 plus years ago, but that it was, it was absolutely enormous. 
Okay. It was not the equivalent, uh, you know, it was even bigger than what, what you would imagine most movie theater screens look like today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my recollection is closer to one of those top of the line IMAX theaters. It probably wasn't that big, but it seemed like it at the time. Uh, so you, so jumping back a bit, what, what first got you into pro wrestling first? I guess this is, uh, were you sort of old WWWF? So you must have been in New York around the time of the, Vince McMahon Jr. buyout, etc., and in the first expansion time. It's a really interesting time to be a wrestling fan, I guess. It was a fascinating time, but interestingly mm. enough, my first exposure to professional wrestling was in Florida um, ah, okay. when I was visiting my grandparents, which is the classic New York thing. Uh, your grandparents live in Florida, and you visit them over the holiday breaks. Yes, yeah. Um, and I remember changing the channels, and, and as I'm flipping through the channels, uh, this... Large man with splotches on his belly welly was, was doing an interview. Uh, that would be Dusty Rhodes. Of course, right, I didn't know yeah. this at the time, but I remember just being absolutely captivated and not only thinking this was cool, but I remember at the time saying to myself, I don't know what this is, but this is the coolest thing ever. Is this a job? Is this something I could do? Mm. And to a very lesser extent years later, I was actually able to do it, but Slowly, over the next couple of years, found wrestling on the dial in New York. We were fortunate enough to get not only Vince Jr. and his WWF, but we got Mid-Atlantic originally on the Spanish-language station. Oh, how cool. Okay. I did not speak Spanish at all, but I I was drawn to their product uh, slightly more than I was the WWFs, although when Vince really went forward with the rock and wrestling connection to someone who was in their early teens, it really connected with me, yeah. uh, and, that, and that was what led me to. Uh, and I had actually gone to my first live show two weeks before WrestleMania 1, which was at Madison Square Garden. It's a, it's a fascinating footnote to history that Madison Square Garden, which was normally run about once a month, they ran it. They ran a regular house show two weeks before WrestleMania one, which was, you know, Vince literally putting all his eggs in one basket. And if this failed, he would be out of business. So it's really surprising that they ran it so close together. But it was a, a typical house show. The main draw was actually a live Piper's Pit with Mr. T to build oh, up wow, okay. uh, the, the big match on WrestleMania 1. And I remember it, of course, led into a big brawl and with, uh, you know, uh, Orton and uh, I think Hogan was there. And, and, you know, and I just remember the crowd going absolutely crazy for that. So did Hogan wrestle on that card? Can you remember he that? did not. The, ma- no. the, the two main events, there was a six-man tag. It was, I believe, Andre, Snuka, and Junkyard Dog against Patera, Stud, and Jesse Ventura. Okay. And then a lumberjack match uh, for the Intercontinental title with Valentine against Tito Santana. Okay, yeah, they used to do a lot of um, icy ties on top. Some, some of the, some of the, uh, a lot of B towns think back then, but oh, oh some, some, some of the A towns. I mean, that's quite incredible. I guess you're, you're lucky to going up in New York, but for someone in London to ha- for someone's first wrestling event to be Madison Square Garden is, is pretty fantastic. I mean, I've, I've been lucky enough to go a couple of times. Um, but it's, it's one of the few places I think you get, uh, goosebumps going. I don't know if a, 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 a kind of someone from that area does this still when they go in, but I certainly got goosebumps going there because just, you can just feel the history in the place. Uh, yeah, definitely. Not just because of where it's located, but because wrestling has been there for so many decades. It's, 
just different. It's a different vibe. And, and the same can be said for you know, the Cow Palace in San Francisco, I would imagine, even though the, the arena might not be up to snuff today. It's still the venue where, you know, Ray Stevens, Pat Patterson, all the big stars wrestled back in the day. And, and, and it's just it's a different vibe if you're not just a wrestling fan, but a wrestling historian. Yeah, absolutely. I haven't done Cow Palace, unfortunately, but the, the two that, the, in fact, I would say the two that really have got me in recent times. So I, I've been to Japan a couple of times now. Tokyo Dome did a bit, but I tell you the one that really got me was Corican Hall. That when I walked in there and walked up the, there's like a um, staircase. There's a lot of graffiti and stuff walking up. It. It's just like absolute shivers up your spine. I feel like I'm a like 12 year old boy going to my first wrestling event ever. And it's just like, I think there's just some special places that just, you can just do that. A lot, a lot of the new arenas now just kind of all, all look the same and they might have a different emblem on the outside, but some of these, like MSG still got it and other places still got it, Richard. So who was your, who were some of your favorites when you were, when you were growing up first watching, watching wrestling? When I first got into wrestling, I will admit I, I cheered for the baby faces and booed for the heels. So, um, you know, Snooka was, uh, fascinating me. I, obviously Hogan was pushed to the moon. Like I said, I was captivated by Dusty Rhodes. Um, as I started following it more and getting into it, the, what we call the cool heels started appealing to me more as a rebellious teenager. I would say if you had to you know, ask my favorite of all time, I would say Roddy Piper. Um, but Savage is high up on that list. Terry yeah. Funk, Steamboat. Uh, in recent years, I've come to respect the Junkyard Dog a lot more. And, you know, and that, you know, it, it really depends on what your definition of professional wrestling is. I, I, there are a lot of people that, think Dusty Rhodes was not a good professional wrestler. I, I understand what they mean when they say that, but I disagree with them uh, because wrestling is more is about much more than what you do in the ring. It's about connecting to that crowd and, and, and wanting them to go pay money to see a ticket to either see you kick somebody's butt or to see you get your butt kicked. And that to me is what Piper, he always had that. And he, he always talked about, he never said he had a match coming up. He always called it a fight. And that yeah. just, that just, you know, that just makes it seem so much more, you know, visceral and, and, and real. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I, th- I think that that is, I, I haven't seen a huge amount of Dusty Rhodes' career, but some of the, some of the, um, look back sort of Ric Flair DVDs and such like. But I, I, everything I've seen of him in, in Ring Around His Primary, it was, you know, better than solid. It was, it was, it was good. And actually, well, I had this conversation with someone, Rick, fairly recently about The Rock. I mean, you think The Rock had some really good, really great matches with people, but an all, as an all-round pro wrestler, if you're, if you're not just talking about pure technician and just being able to, you know, hit a, uh, you know, a 450 off the top rope, it's not, it's not what it's all about. It's got to be a combination of stories and the promos, and I think that's what's lacking a lot in modern-day wrestling. But yeah, and Dust that, is fantastic. Um, so what, what was, around that, um, around that time of WrestleMania 1, so obviously you were, you were quite into it at the time. What, what was, what was it like at school around that time? Did, did mo- were most people into it around the sort of the advent of MTV or, or was it kind of a little bit niche like it is now? At, at the time of WrestleMania 1, it definitely wasn't there yet. I do, I have a, a very real recollection of seeing, uh, some of my schoolmates. I wasn't friends with them, but you know, obviously you know everyone in your grade, but they were at, Nassau Coliseum for the closed circuit as well. So it was slowly getting there. And I think, uh, you know, within a couple of years around the time of WrestleMania three was when not everybody in, in my school was talking about it, but enough people were that you didn't feel like an outcast anymore yeah. liking it. 
So, so was WrestleMania three the big peak then for, for, for the play circuit and sort of your your peers liking pro wrestling? Well, that one I I so I mentioned I saw WrestleMania one on closed circuit. Now WrestleMania two, if you recall, was held in three locations, one of which was Nassau Coliseum. Ah, I yes, did yeah. the opposite this time around, and I went to a closed circuit viewing in um it was called the Felt Forum. It's an it's a small arena adjacent to Madison Square Garden. Mm. So WrestleMania 1 was at the Garden, but I saw it on closed circuit at the Coliseum. WrestleMania 2 was at the Coliseum, but I saw it on closed circuit. Okay. Uh, and and now I forget what the venue is called, but it's still a part of the Madison Square Garden complex. It's it's sort of upstairs from it. And then WrestleMania 3, which of course was in uh, suburban Detroit, I watched it at Madison Square Garden on closed circuit. So was that huge at Madison Square Garden at the <laughs> When that, when that one. I, went. yeah, I recall again, I don't believe, I believe the arena was cut off because you can't, they didn't have, you know, a video wall with four different sides to it. They just had one big screen and they probably plopped it maybe two thirds of the way down and sold, you know, most of, you know, as much as they could seats. But I, I recall it being full for however many seats were open. They were all occupied. So what would the, I mean, this is probably testing your memory banks, but what, what sort of ticket prices would, can you remember oh. at all what, what, the, what this would be in comparison to a live, like a live show? Maybe half well, since, or, since or I didn't ticket. pay for the, you know, since I didn't pay for the tickets, I have no idea. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I really don't recall. I know one of the things I, you know, as a researcher now with charting the territories, obviously I look at a lot of old ads and you see the ticket prices and, Obviously, without adjusting for inflation, they're a lot cheaper. But even when you adjust for inflation, um, you could get really good seats for a lot less than than uh, you know what they are today. Uh, nowadays, you know the the really good seats are are there's much more difference between the last seat in the venue and the front row seat in the venue. Back yeah. then, there was less of a gap between them. I I really have have no idea what they were other than. Uh, they were reasonable enough uh, that my parents didn't mind uh, splurging for them for my sister and I to go see it. Mm. So did you? So did you carry on through the through the eighties? Was, was there ever a time where you sort of fell away from wrestling, like quite a lot of people do? Whether it be you know work commitments, going off to college, or have you have you have your fandom stayed pretty consistent? My fandom stayed consistent and and didn't really taper off uh, and stayed consistent until I actually got into professional wrestling and the independence which would have been in uh, the mid-90s. My first match, my first bout as a wrestling manager um, was August 20th of 1995. So I had stayed a wrestling fan all through that time. There was a time when I retired as a wrestling manager, which was 2007, that I stepped significantly back from following it for many, many years. And it wasn't until about 2015 that I got back into it again with a different take on it, you know, more as a quote unquote historian slash researcher, as opposed to a fan of the current product. I, I follow, I keep up with the product. I watch things occasionally. Um, and I'm uh, very attuned to the independent scene here in the Southern part of the U S but certainly not as big a fan as I was as a teenager. Sure. So I'm going to skip forward, actually. We'll, we'll, go, we'll go back to you being a um, pro wrestling manager, but just, just out of interest. So one of the questions is what your watching habits are now. So are there, are there any particular promotions that you stay 
weekly on top of or is it just a case of just generally knowing having an idea of what's going on if you hear something that's good you'll reach out for it but um you know you're not you're not particularly following any promotions closely i i would say yeah there's really nothing that i follow quote unquote religiously uh i keep up with the goings on in the wwe and aew lesser so impact and ring of honor and mlw which i guess are would be the Big five here. I do keep an eye on Game Changer Wrestling, which is, uh, you know, the, the independent promotion that, that, uh, as well, you know, has jumped to the forefront of a lot of people because of Joey Janela's Spring Break, yeah. uh, and their other specialty shows. And they, they, they just run a tremendous schedule. They use, they use a lot of wrestlers, uh, that I have worked with and am familiar with. And they, they really seem to have their finger on the pulse of what a certain demographic uh, of wrestling fans is into. And yeah. they, they do an amazing job with that. And and so does AEW to a, uh, as well. I, I did watch, um, we're recording this the weekend after their first empty arena event. Uh, by the time this airs, we don't you know quite know what they're doing going forward, but this was the first one where they filmed it in Jacksonville in front of the empty arena. And a lot of people uh, that I saw on Twitter said it best is that, they had their finger on the pulse. They they let the wrestlers sort of have, you know, more fun with it than what WWE did uh, with their presentations of the empty arena shows. And, and it really looked like that AEW sat down and said, if I was a wrestling fan, what do I want to see as escapism with with not ignoring the real world surroundings, but you know, and and just the idea of having some of the wrestlers in the in in the crowd. It really added to the environment and, and they, you know, uh, it felt like the, as a viewer, you were with them on this journey as opposed to WWE's programming, which is we are showing this to you and you will sit back and watch it. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I, th- I finished that show um, earlier on today. Uh, I watched it in two halves and I thought they absolutely nailed it because I watched, I watch AEW every week and I follow New Japan as close as I can. Um, WWE, I tend to watch the pay-per-views, but it's, I find their whole promotion quite a challenge these days. I'll probably watch the first 10 or 15 minutes of the first empty arena SmackDown, and it, I just found it really, really tough. And I thought AEW just did that. I completely agree about the, the, the wrestlers in the audience with the, the betting and the, but out of, them kind of playing around with it and having a bit of fun. I just thought they got it so well. But the other thing that I really like, it's, it's such a small thing, is that they, they weren't really throwing down your throats that next week on Dynamite we're going to have this. The And then this was obviously a directive. They said that on the next Dynamite, so whenever that's going to be, so they weren't saying, we promise you this is going to be next week. We understand that there's problems here, like massive, massive world problems. But on the next one you see, this is what we're going to give you. And I just thought that was such a nice touch. I and mean, I think that they, they've had a few team problems, but on the whole, um, they are they have been really, really good, especially their probably four or five episodes into each pay-per-view. They just, they just get it right. There's clearly some, I mean, Tony Khan, I know, is a long-time fan. He loves Mid-South and all sorts of promotions. They've clearly got some really intelligent minds, Cody as well, and all of the guys. So, I mean, long, long may that continue. But, who, oh, yeah, who knows what's going to be happening, happening next week. Um, so, jumping back, how did you get involved in, 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 in pro wrestling yourself in terms of a, an actual sort of performer? 
Well, as I mentioned, you know, literally from my first exposure to professional wrestling, I was like, is, you know, is this a job? Do people do this? Do they, is this how they make a living? And so uh, as I, you know, continued watching as a fan and, and got into it and, and followed the smaller promotions and um, started subscribing to Dave Meltzer's Wrestling Observer newsletter and, and how I got into it, I ended up going to an independent event uh, near where I was living in North Carolina at the time. Um, I talked my way somehow into becoming the timekeeper for the following event a month later. And from there, talked to one of the wrestlers uh, and said, you know, I, I really want to get involved. I know I'm not athletic enough to be a, a wrestler, but I think I could be a good manager because I, I annoy people all the time when I talk. <laughs> um, and he took me under his wing. I, I will say I'm grateful to him, but... He was more looking for someone to drive him to all the towns uh, for as little money as possible. But to a 20-something-year-old who wants in the business, that's a sacrifice I was willing to make and willing to take. And they did that with him for a while, and it, it uh, eventually, you know, slowly learned what I was doing, learned the ropes. In particular, uh, the most valuable lesson I ever learned was from uh, – a man named Brian Hildebrand, who most people know as yeah. Mark Curtis, uh, yeah. referee for WCW. The lesson, the, the most valuable lesson I ever learned wasn't what to do, but it was when not to do it. Mm. Uh, and sort of understanding that, yes, you're at ringside, you're there the whole time, but not to take focus away from the match unless you're setting something specifically up involving you. So you you want to re- maintain a constant presence at ringside, but you don't want fans focused on you uh, unless they absolutely need to be. So it, it's walking a fine line. And then um, also understanding how to get the crowd to that point where they almost want to jump over the rail and hit you. Uh, and, and the key word there being almost. Because... Uh, and, and, and that's really, you know, and, and as a manager, when you do that well, it's a good feeling to know you have that control that you can get them to that point. But at the same time, if you can sense that it's about to get, you know, past that point to tone it down, there was an incident. I don't know how big it got on social media outside of my bubble, but in Alabama uh, a couple of weeks ago where a female valet who's someone I know and respect very much, um, a fan attacked her, uh, and oh, it ended boy. up, and, and, and it ended up with, uh, her, uh, the wrestler she was managing, who is her husband, coming out to help her, which led to the female fans, significant other attacking him. And, um, there were no, there was lack security and there were no guardrails. And, and so that's, you know, that's one of the issues I have with independent wrestling, especially when I see promotions that not only don't have any sort of physical barrier, but, have the fans literally up against the ring and banging on the ring. It creates a great atmosphere, but me having worked in the real world as an actuary, um, I'm all about, you know, uh, minimizing risk. And yeah. it's just hard to justify doing that when the potential for something bad to happen is there. So when you have a guardrail and you have a security, it's real easy to antagonize someone because you know if they're, you know, ready to go, security's going to grab them. But when security's not there, you have to really be aware of your surroundings. And, and another great lesson I learned is how to find the guy. And it's not always a guy. Sometimes it's a girl. But in every crowd, there is one fan who, if you single them out, 
the rest of the crowd comes to their defense. It's usually a loyal fan. Uh, you know, it might be not a young kid, but it might be, uh, a preteen, not a teen, cause they're, they're, they can be trouble with. There's always one person that if you can find them in the crowd and antagonize them, you get the whole crowd mad at you. You don't have to insult 17 different people to get them all mad at you. You just find that one person and they're there. They're in every single crowd. And like a, you know, like uh, Christmas lights, when the one lights up, everybody else lights up as well. That's great. So, so t- tell me some of the, so I'm sure you've worked quite a lot of interesting people. You, you were, you're involved for, so about 12 years, you know, in terms of your first run, was it, in terms of, or a bit longer than that? Yeah, from nine, uh, from 95 to about 07, there were some periods of time where I was not as active. Uh, there were some times when I was, you know, working Four or five nights a week. I mean, when, when wrestling was hot, think about this, think about, you know, the late nineties when WCW was hot, WWE was hot, um, independent wrestling, there were shows almost every night of the week. And, and I could work, uh, Monday nights in South Carolina, Tuesday nights in West Virginia, yeah, Thursdays in North Carolina, and then Fridays and Saturdays wherever I wanted to. There, there was just so much work back then. Nowadays, there are plenty of independents, but here in the States, they don't run as frequently during the week. I know on your side of the pond, my my good friend Sugar Dunkerton um, has gone over there for a couple of tours, and he's working, you know, every every day practically. Yeah, I think our um our scene went certainly went through a big high uh, point, probably maybe two or three years ago, and it's probably a little bit down and out with the whole um, WWE NXT UK stuff. Is has got a lot of guys under contract with quite a lot of limitations, but. Um, progress, particularly before they sort of sold out to WWE, um, and Rev Pro is another one, um, and lots of other smaller promotions as well. So it's, it's, um, you know, hopefully it'll be on its way back, but it's just, I think now it's for a, for actual wrestler, there's, there's so much opportunity to get signed to a contract with somebody and make money. And, and, and it's, it's, um, I'm sure for some of these guys, it's quite difficult to say no to. So around those midnight, midnight, mid and late nineties times, was it lots of different independent promotions you were working for? Was there one particular one or, group of guys that you're involved with most of the time uh, there were lots um but generally speaking i ran with a with a certain crew more often than not um one of the things i should want to mention i also at the time ran a website that was called wrestling.com, which at the time was one of the few sites that covered independent wrestling and okay. Um, for my benefit, this enabled me to have some leverage because I had something else I could offer independent promotions. Because let's face it, I was a slightly better than average pro wrestling manager. I'm not putting any butts in seats, but promoters knew that if they booked me, they would get good coverage on the website and I would be able to work out deals for to sell their merchandise, which at the time was just videotapes. So I was very fortunate um, to use what I had to offer to make myself more valuable. But for the most part, I traveled throughout Tennessee and North Carolina. Um, the the guy who truly I credit with training me, a gentleman by the name of Bo James, um, traveled with him a lot. I also, when Steve Carino moved down to North Carolina in 96, I think late 96 or 97, I traveled with him a lot. And when he would do the shows back up in the Northeast, um, I would often travel with him um, he, he would go visit his family up there, and, and I would uh, do some stuff for Dennis Coraluzzo, among other promoters. So, okay, for, you know, I named it now, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I was also fortunate enough to work with Omega Wrestling, um, which was where Matt and Jeff Hardy's promotion, 
So you talk about all the talent there, and, the, and Karina was working for them, as was Joey Matthews, later known as Joey Mercury, Christian York, Shannon Moore. Um, uh, so I, I've worked with a lot of guys that became stars. The great thing about independent wrestling, you also work with a lot of guys that were your childhood heroes. Um, uh, the first time I ever worked in New Jersey, I got to manage the Honky Tonk Man, which oh, is just wow. so, you know, it's just <laughs> so cool to, you know, to work with someone that you grew up as a fan of. Uh, and we were, hey, he was, he was the honky talk man. He was, he was not that different. (laughs) Well, and the first time out, he didn't know who I was. So it it took a little time for us to get used to one another. And basically he worked against King Kong Bundy that night. Bundy was the baby face and the only bump during the match was taken by me. Um, so, and, and, you know, and that's, that's what managers were used for a lot. Uh, when you have the legends out, you just let them do their thing. And the, and the fans don't care that honky tonk man isn't doing flips off the ropes because they don't, they just want to see the honky tonk man. They just want to yeah, sing along funny. to his song. Yeah. They see King Kong Bundy, who is the main event of WrestleMania too. And, and it's a lot of fun. And, and then the silly manager gets in the way and interferes and messes things up and causes the honky tonk man to get pinned. Everyone goes home happy. Yeah, exactly. I think that works. If, if that's what, I mean, I, th- I think the wrestling show, um, at its best is a little bit of something for everyone, isn't it? I and mean, it doesn't have to be, I think if you have too much of one thing on a show, um, you're probably not quite striking the balance correctly, really. Um, so, so how, who, who are some of the other people that you have some of your favorites that you've worked with? Yeah, I mean, gosh, there's so many. I was fortunate enough um, when I I mentioned I took a detour to California at one point when I came back. I started working for a promotion in Georgia called NCW, which stood for National Championship Wrestling, which was what became NWA Wildside. And they had uh, a, a, a young rookie there just getting started by the name of AJ Styles. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And... Uh, he and, and they built up. They they did this great feud with him and Kay Crush, who is uh, Ron Killings. Mm. So it, it's just uh, you know. And yes, I would love to say I knew from the moment I met them they would be huge superstars. I would be lying if I said that, but you could tell that the potential was there. And, and the same thing, of course, working with Matt and Jeff. They obviously um, were incredibly athletic, and and at the time doing something that that few people were doing and and you just knew that the potential was there i was actually um working in omega show and before the event started we were all setting up the ring when matt got a phone call on his cell from howard finkel which was giving him and jeff their first house show dates because originally they were just doing stuff on tv they were just enhancing our wrestlers for tv um, from there, they started working more house shows, and then shortly after that was when they got their push on TV being beating Kai and Tai, I think was the start of it. But it was I, I just remember that Matt was on the phone, and, and you know no one thought anything of it, but as he's talking on the phone, we can only hear his side of the conversation, but he was very animated and reacting, and, and we could tell that something cool was, was happening during this phone call. And, and it turned out that's when they got their first run of actual house show bookings uh, for both Matt and his brother Jeff. Oh, that's that's that. what a fantastic moment to be kind of a part of. That. That's just incredible. And um, going back to AJ, I, I just think he, I think he has such. I think wrestling fans have such an affinity for him because I, I think that every, he was always everyone's sort of favorite uh, in, in TNA, etc. And, and during his time after that, when he, when he went off to New Japan. 
And even when he went to WWE, I, th- I think people thought, actually, it's incredible this guy's finally at, what, 38 or 39, whatever, however old he was when he first went in the door. But I genuinely don't think anyone believed that AJ Styles would be featured as, and twice really it's happened now, featured as their WWE, their, their original championship, their world champion. And I mean, I think when, when he first beat Ambrose, that was, that was quite something. But when he got that title off Jinder Mahal and held it for a year and he was like the focal point of the promotion, it was just, just quite something to behold. It's like you don't, you don't really get to him in those real moments in wrestling. I've been a fan your whole life, but the AJ Styles one certainly was. Yeah, and, and and there's often a disconnect between wrestling fans that follow New Japan and Impact and all, and, and all these other stuff versus ones that are vaguely aware of wrestling but only really know WWE. And, and, and case in point, a good friend of mine watched WWE and nothing else. And I uh, continually told her that AJ Styles, he's the best wrestler in the world, this and that, this and that. She's like, sure, whatever. And then finally, okay. when he got to WWE, I'm like, that's the guy I've been telling you about. She's like, oh, my God, he's awesome. I'm like, I told you. Um, but there are just there's such a large number of fans that don't follow wrestling to the extent that that we do, that if you don't go to WWE, it doesn't count. And so for AJ, not only to get there, but then to almost against all odds move up the cards and, and, you know, become the focal point of, you know, the promotion for a year. It's just a testament to his ability. And, and it's, yes. and it's wonderful to see. And I, I, you know, when he, he debuted at the Royal Rumble in, uh, was it 2016? Um, yeah. but he had already, he finished out a couple of commitments that he had to independent promoters. Um, after that, and I saw him on a independent show in Canton, Georgia, after he had made his Royal Rumble debut. And I, you know, I remember telling him, you know, uh, you know, go make millions and millions of dollars. I'm so happy for you. It's, it's just, you know, and even though he had already made great money for years, it's just, it's a different thing when you make it to the WWE and, and to see him not only stay there, but excel. Um, it's, it's just really rewarding to see someone that you were working in front of a hundred, 150 people with now, you know, headlining pay-per-views. Yeah. And he, he used to do, a, um, I saw him in the UK quite a number of times for promotions. He did quite a lot of the Rev Pro stuff, stuff and had some, I think he had a really incredible match with him, Will Ospreay and Marcy Skull. Probably, it must have been 2015. This is, this is really, really young Will Ospreay and Skull was, wasn't old, so he must have been, I think Ospreay was probably maybe 21, 22 and, and Skull probably like 24, 25. So really young guys, AJ Styles. Just unbelievable. A thousand rabid fans in London. It was just, uh, just incredible. I'm so pleased. AJ. I just feel a bit sad for him that the, the, I'm sure the WrestleMania thing with The Undertaker was, was going to be a real career highlight for him. And I, and I still fully believe that AJ could have got something really, really special out of The Undertaker, but, the WrestleMania that we're about to get, if we get, if we get it, if we get there, um, is going to be very different. What, what are your thoughts on the behind closed doors mania as it stands at the moment? Uh, there, you know, in, in these times, there's no right answer. Um, yeah. they, uh, they, they truly wrestling has always been escapist entertainment. Um, you know, I, I don't know the data, but I have a feeling that during the depression, uh, the great depression of the, you know, 1929, uh, into the 30s that, um, wrestling probably did very well in a lot of areas. Um, I know, I know movies did, uh, the movie industry really, uh, did really well as people were just looking for a brief respite from 
you know, what's going on in the real world. And wrestling has always served that role. I think that's why Vince was so dead set on, on coming back right after the 9-11 attacks. Yeah. Um, and, and it's the same mentality here. Uh, and the show must go on. And, and whatever my feelings are with the WWE, uh, the fact that there's not going to be any fans, I, I truly believe the wrestlers will will step up to the plate and make magic and make memories for anyone who watches the event, be it live, tape delay, or what have you. They they know, because especially nowadays more than ever, all these wrestlers were wrestling fans growing up. So they know what it means. They know what fans are looking for now uh, more than ever. And, and there's no doubt in my mind that no matter the circumstances, they're going to do their best to deliver, and they probably will. Yeah, and I, I actually think the um, the two night thing is is probably not. A, so I, I've I've heard uh, varying reports on why they're doing this. One is around to keep the number of people down in the in the place they're going to be doing it at for local rules and also just just less risk. Um, interestingly, today I saw a report that they might be taping some of this next week because um, apparently they're going to be taking quite a lot of um, the Raws and Smackdowns to WrestleMania. And I don't blame them. I, don't, I mean, no one's going to see or know what's going on. So if that ultimately means they can get the guys in, get them excluded from anybody else, get it done safely and get them out of there and get home to their families, then I, then I think that's, that's the right thing. The thing that's, um, I mean, all this stuff is so material in the grand scheme of things, but as a, you know, I don't know if you're into any, into any other sports, but I'm a big football fan here in the UK. And like, you can't help but think about this stuff because it's part of your, you know, it's intrinsically part of your life and what you do. So I think as wrestling fans, it's not the wrong thing for us to think about this stuff when we understand where its placement is. Um, but I do wonder long term what's going to happen to these promotions because so inevitably someone in AEW or WWE is going to, going to catch this at some point. Or, or they already have it in that, and or that's the same reality. Have, yeah. We have to, as much as I say, yes, they're going to do this and it's cool and it's great. We also need to be realistic and, and, uh, the probabilities are that someone may already have it, uh, and not yeah. know. And, and so you have to temper this. Yes, it's cool that they're doing these shows. Is it really the best idea? And then, like I said, there's no right answer. Just like at the time, I can't fault Vince for continuing the show after Owen Hart fell. Um, you just can't be in the proper frame of mind to make, to, to think rationally at that time. I think we're in this time frame now and, and understanding Vince's personality, th- this show is going to go on under Vince's watch. And yes, perhaps this might cause some, uh, you know, problems. Uh, or may already be, but we don't know. And I, I I can't, I don't, uh, my, my friends that are current independent wrestlers, uh, several of them are opting not to take bookings for these. Uh, there are a lot of closed arena shows, um, popping up over the next week or so that are going to be streamed on independentwrestling.tv. I get it. I'm not going to, you know, chastise anyone for working them. But I, you know, I just really hope they're making a an informed decision and not a knee jerk. Well, I'm a wrestler, therefore I must wrestle. Yeah, I think that's and the challenge that's come here as well. And there's, there's lots of I'm not super up on what uh, you guys government is doing, um, but we've got a lot of measures that are, I mean, it's so fast moving. We've got a lot of measures to protect people and jobs and the such like here. But the, the bottom line is they've been advising people for a couple of weeks. You know, stay at home 14 days or seven days. Originally seven days, now fourteen. If you're saying if you're ill, 
But actually, if you're not, if you're an industry where you're not going to be paid, that's a real, real tough thing. And for the wrestlers, um, you know, if they don't take bookings now, I mean, this is going to be months, not weeks. So it's, it's a real, real tough thing to put these guys in, especially young wrestlers on the up that probably haven't got any savings, living month to month. The whole sort of gig economy type situation it is a real, real tough thing. Yeah. And, and like I said, at this point in time, there's no right answer. I understand wrestlers that choose to work. I'm not going to, you know, knock them. Um, but I, you know, I, I really, you know, I just really hope that they're not just thinking about today. Yeah. I understand if this is their income. Yes. I understand it, but. Are the things they're doing now going to be detrimental to them for a longer period of time than if they chose not to for a brief period of time and then could go back to normal quicker? And, and, uh, you know, no one knows. So you uh, can't really, yeah, yeah it's just, it, this is what it is. And individualism is, uh, you know, uh, one of the things that make, uh, America and, and probably more, even, in, even still, uh, the UK, um, great is that we, you know, have freedoms uh, in many things. But I think now more than ever, we also need to think about the larger picture and how the things we do and the choices we make may affect other people, not just our loved ones, but, you know, other people uh, that, that we come in contact with. Big time, completely, completely agreement. So, um, tell me about this Charleston Territories website. How, how did you get going with this, and um, sort of how long you've been running that now? And sort of tell tell the listeners all about it. Um, what charting the territories is is an attempt to bring some sort of statistics into professional wrestling, which is something that there really hasn't been much done on. Um, Obviously, for the big superstars, uh, for Bruno San Martino, we know how many times he main evented Madison Square Garden, how many sellouts he had, so on and so forth. For a lot of the bigger names, we have interesting data, but there were so many wrestlers that were full-time professional wrestlers that were, you know, mid-carters that just worked the territories that traveled all across the country. And there's no back of a baseball card stat line for them. And, and as I mentioned at the beginning of, of this, uh, I not only have been into professional wrestling, but I was also into statistics. Um, and the idea slowly formed over time. And I realized, and it's not applicable today, but back in the territorial era, and certainly in Mid-South Wrestling, um, when you went to your local house show, the cards were structured sequentially. The opening match featured preliminary wrestlers. The main event featured the top draws in the territory or some of the top draws in the territory that were rotated in and out of that spot. Nowadays, they always like to start a show with a hot match, often involving the lighter, more acrobatic wrestlers, and they sort of uh, book it with peaks and valleys. And every time there's a big match, they will, you know, have a lighter match, uh, after it, uh, what we call, you know, so people can take a restroom break or get some popcorn or what have you. But back then, there was a definite order to the matches. And so I realized if there was a way to attach a number to these, we would be able to see for a given territory in a given period of time, you know, who the main eventers were, who the mid-carters were, who the preliminary wrestlers were, and and come up with that that stat line. So I created a statistic that measured a wrestler's average position or spot on the card, 
and I either very cleverly or very nerdishly uh, name the statistic statistical position over time so that it has the acronym of SPOT because right, that's nice. what it measures. Uh, and it's a number between zero and one. I usually show it uh, to two decimal points. And a 1.00 would mean that that wrestler was always in the main event for every card they were booked on over a given period of time. Um, so it's it's the equivalent of, of uh, in many ways, it's like a batting average for baseball. Um, and just like you can look at someone's batting average for a month or for a season or for a career, we can do the same thing with spot. And, and I, over the last couple of years, have sort of experimented with, with it and played with it and come up with a formula for calculating it. So at any given point in time, I use five weeks worth of data. So for a given point X, I look at that week, the two weeks before it, and the two weeks after it. And I apply a different weighting to each of those weeks to give more credit towards the current week. But I then calculate for all the cards they were on in this period of time, generally speaking, where were they? Were they at the top of the card? Were they in the middle? Were they in the bottom? And I present all sorts of uh, charts and, and whatnot that, that sort of measure this thing. And you can track a wrestler's movement in the territory. If someone's new to the territory and they're going to get pushed, you can literally see them moving up the cards via this spot rating. They might start out in the prelims, getting some victories over the other preliminary wrestlers, and then they move up the cards and eventually um, uh, become main eventers. So how how long? So so what periods have you covered so far? And what what um, particular promotions are you focusing on? I yes. originally I thought I could cover you know all the territories, but. Uh, one of the other things I'm doing is also working, uh, doing research to try and find as many cards as possible. And what I've come to realize is there are some territories where we have most of the data already, but there are some that we don't. And I made a conscious decision um, about a year ago to focus on the territory that includes Mid-South Wrestling. So it's originally the territory started by Leroy McGurk. Um, and was originally in Oklahoma, Arkansas, and parts of Missouri and the, the border towns of Texas. And, of course, expanded over the years and eventually became Mid-South Wrestling, and its focus was in Louisiana, Mississippi. Because it's a territory that was around for many years, and aside from the Mid-South era, which is, you know, 79 to 86, and then after that they were the UWF, there's not a lot out there on what happened before 1979. And this was a territory that had, you know, Bill Watts and Danny Hodge as your top guys. It, it, um, it is a fascinating territory because there are times when it's stacked with guys that we all know that are Hall of Famers. And there are times when their roster is not as deep uh, as it was. So it's interesting to cover. And I, I basically, I'm very schizophrenic. Um, I, Currently, look at um, three points in time. I look at uh, this month in 1972, 1976, and 1980. And, okay. yeah. and meanwhile, on the back end, I'm also building up my database of house shows, starting with Danny Hodge's debut in October of 1959, with the idea of being eventually all the house shows that I've gotten and found that haven't been previously known 
um, will eventually be all in one spot. And, and to give you an idea, I've traveled uh, to libraries over the last year, um, searched Internet archives. The number of wrestling cards I have between 1959 and 1986, which is a 27-year period, I have over 14,000 for this one territory alone. So that's an average of just over 500 a year. And my estimate is that I've only got about two thirds of what's out there, of what was run. Wow. And so this, this is, sorry, go ahead. And, and to give some of your listeners an idea of how do I find these things, one of the things that the promotions did to promote their events was run newspaper advertisements. And fortunately enough, most libraries in, in the U.S. and probably around the world saved those newspapers and, and transferred them to microfilm. Uh, and nowadays, a lot of them are online. There are a few subscription sites where you can actually search the newspaper. So I can type in Danny Hodge or Junkyard Dog oh, or Bill Watts um, yeah. and, and find things. But not all the newspapers are there. So I've done a lot of work looking at the most populated towns in certain states uh, in the 1960s that we don't know anything about, and I travel to those towns and visit the local library and see if I can find out if they were if there were shows running. So it's it's like detective work, it's like forensics work, it's like data work, and and so I've gradually over time of that fourteen thousand the shows that I have, about half of them are not on any of the major wrestling archive sites that are currently available. So I've oh. been able to uncover a lot of new data and. But it's just a never-ending process because I'm still finding new ones literally on a weekly basis. So well, it's just, time, I mean, this is incredible endeavor. How, how much time do you t- t- tend to? This is this, is, this drop- is my full-time. This is my full-time job. I'm uh, fortunate enough. I'm uh, semi-retired, is what I refer to it as. Not just as a wrestling manager, but uh, as a you know, in my outside of wrestling career as well. I'm uh, fortunate enough that this has become my passion uh, and it's something that I'm going to spend the foreseeable future on um, uh, putting together and compiling. But yes, uh, pretty much um, not every waking hour, but I spend several hours, uh, you know, anywhere between six and ten a day on this presently. Wow, that is absolutely incredible. That, that is what an absolutely brilliant endeavor. So, so is, the, is the plan to try and get as close to sort of complete mid, sort of this mid, this area territory-wise from pre-mid-south, or it was called something else, all the way through to sort of UWF, all of that sort of documented, um, all the stats, etc. Is that, is that sort of the long-term, long-term goal for this? Yeah, that is the long-term goal with the realization that I will never find them all because the other thing these territories ran what we call spot shows, which they would come to a small town once or twice a year. And to search through 365 editions of a newspaper to hopefully maybe find an ad for one show, it's not worth the time being spent. No, so yeah, the realization yeah. is that I know I will never catch them all, but at this point... It's like Pokemon. It's, it's, you know, you, you, you find as many as you can. And I, I, you know, the other thing is the more I find, the more I adjust my, uh, percent complete. Like I used to think I was closer to half complete, but as I find more, I realize that there's more out there. And, and especially these spot shows in the sixties and early seventies, they could run them with as few as four wrestlers and one referee. Wow. They would have two singles matches, and then all the wrestlers would come back for a tag match. 
Wow, that's so, I, I know I've heard this that there's some of that some of the house shows from from a while ago were literally like a ninety minute, two hour, maybe an intermission, and it's literally three or three matches, four matches, kind of thing, which is a real departure from what you get today, isn't it? So that's interesting. It's a huge departure, but also understand that a lot of these matches were two out of three falls. Yes. Um, so you're you're getting uh, you're still getting probably closer to two hours, two hours fifteen minutes all told. I think was the number they were shooting for. Um, yeah, and that's the other thing I would love to do with this data is examine how that changed over time, the average number of wrestlers per show. And in a perfect world, compare that across territories. Did Mid-Atlantic have more wrestlers per show than Mid-South did in 1984? Uh, how did that compare to 1962? Uh, those are the types of things that we could get, but it, uh, just like there are hundreds and maybe thousands of people doing this work for baseball, we would need a lot of people working on this for wrestling. So my goal is to not only personally complete this for this one territory, but get enough awareness and acceptance of my work that other people could perhaps pick up the mantle and do it for other territories as well. Wow. Well, that is that's 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 quite incredible. I, I'm I'm really I, I love the the Twitter and some of the pictures of the cards and stuff that you post. So I'll, I'll definitely be continuing to follow and and watching on as this project evolves. It's, it's, it's really it's exciting, just stuff. And two more questions before we get on to this very interesting March thirty first, nineteen eighty four episode of Mid South Wrestling. So, what is what is your? And this is a real tough question. So subjective. And it's the sort of question that I would hate to have to answer myself, but that's why I'm going to ask you it. And um, what's your all-time favorite pro wrestling match? Mine, it, it's uh, that's the easiest question in the world for me to answer. Um, okay, great. It is the uh, double dog collar pit bulls versus Raven and Stevie Richards ECW bout. Okay, when's um, that? When's that from? Uh, that is, uh, ECW. I, gosh, I don't know the date offhand. I'm sure I'm going to get they burned alive for that, but it was basically, it was the culmination. It was a Paul Heyman special where all these other wrestlers were involved and it basically, uh, paid off numerous storylines and angles all at the same time. It's when 911 finally chokeslammed Bill Alfonso. It's when Tommy Dreamer finally got his first pinfall over Raven because one of the pitbulls got hurt and Tommy Dreamer took his place. It's just, to me, it's the perfect example of what I call soap opera booking. Um, pro wrestling has, has been called the male soap opera and I used to watch a lot of soap operas and, and what happens is they all, you know, everyone has their own little storylines and this and that, but a couple of times a year during sweeps period in the U.S., which is when they uh, set advertising rates based on TV ratings, all of these storylines come together and there's usually like a big hostage situation at the hospital or a bank robbery where all these different characters from the show were all there. Oh, so all these storylines... Yeah intertwine and and some of them are paid off and and some of them continue and some of them move off in different directions and this was Paul Heyman to me his crescendo as a booker he took all these different storylines and smashed them all together in this one bout and it to me it's the perfect example of what i consider a good professional wrestling match and but someone else might say will osprey versus ricochet and again 
I understand what they're saying, and I, if they like that sort of thing, yeah, that's a fantastic match. But to me, this is what pro wrestling represents. It's that all these storylines and angles finally paying off and, and moving off in different directions and, and in ways you didn't expect and surprises. And they also had the cat fight, I think, between Beulah and Francine. Like it just, it paid off all these different angles in one match. And it's just, it's, it's an amazing, I don't know if he's a genius or an insane person or both, um, for coming up with it, but it's just, it's magic to me. I'm just gonna, that, I'm, just, I'm sure I've seen some highlights in this match, but you said something that really interested me about your your soap opera and sweep sweep season where they 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 comment out all the storylines. Uh, you put probably don't know this. I don't. This is a thing in America, but we that happens here. But all of our soap operas culminate with their big storylines on Christmas Day, believe it or not. So okay. of, on Christmas Day, a lot of families in the UK. There's two main ones: one on BBC, one on ITV. Um, and you'll get, generally speaking, like there'll be some awful tragedy or something that happens and they get the biggest race in the entire year. No one's out. And it's like the one day a year that everyone watches the soap. It's really bizarre. And, um, but going back to ECW, we didn't get a lot of ECW here, sadly. Um, but I did go back and buy the VHS tapes in the early 2000s. So were you a big fan of that as it was happening? Um, uh, yeah. Again, I was, yeah. I was just the perfect age, uh, to, be a rebellious, you know, seeing how ECW was going against the grain and they were literally giving the middle finger to Vincent to Bischoff. Um, going, so the match, the date of the match, it was, uh, September 19th, 1995, or, um, for you, 19 September, 1995. That's it. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> if we want to use the Queen's, uh, recommendations for date month, uh, but it was at uh, an event called Gangsta's Paradise, but it was the double dog collar match for the ECW Tag Team Titles, September 1995. Um, yeah, it's, you know, having watched both soap operas and wrestling, it, there's a lot more parallels to it than people think. And one of the interesting things about Mid-South TV is it follows the same way. Like, when you watch a TV show, uh, when you watch Bill Watts' Mid-South Wrestling, you feel like you have to watch next week's show. You, when they when they go off the air, you have to go to your local house show to see how it plays out. You have to watch next week's TV. But at the same time, if you miss it and come back two weeks later, very quickly you're caught back up to speed on what happened. So a lot happens in a given episode, but at the same time a lot doesn't happen. And we see that in this episode that we're going to review because there's a lot going on, but so much of it is recaps and sort of yeah. slight, slightly advancing the story forward to build to a huge payoff. But at the same time, a lot happens, but at the same time, nothing really happens, especially yeah. from a ring standpoint. Yeah, it was a really, it was a really strange episode. Just before we go on to it, have you seen, what's your experience with Mid-South? So did you get any of this stuff? In the eighties, when it when it was happening, or is most of your exposure to it been sort of after the fact, and you've gone back and watched a lot of it thereafter? I did get to see Mid South uh, when uh, it aired on TBS on on uh, the cable channel TBS, which was when after Black Friday when Vince took over the time slot from Georgia Championship Wrestling, and then Ole Anderson hastily hastily put together uh, a local promotion based out of Georgia. But after that. Um, uh, Turner made a deal with Bill Watts to air Mid-South Wrestling. So I think it was for a few months it aired on TBS. And I believe after that, um, it was syndicated, uh, on New York. So I got to watch it on one of either Channel 9 or Channel 11 in New York, which were two of the independent 
stations. Uh, we, we got to watch it. And, and yeah, as a teenager, there was just such a big difference between the gritty athletic realism of Mid-South versus the over the top cartoonish, uh, you know, characters of WWF that it, Mid-South really spoke to me more, uh, given my demographics at that time. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think about this quite a lot in terms of if you go back in time and be either in an area during a certain period of time, like Philadelphia in the mid nineties, or, you know, you were going to, going to Madison Square Garden regularly when Bruno Sammartino was the WF champion, et cetera. But it must have been such good fun to be in America in the mid eighties when, when all this Western stuff was available and cable TV was, um, really fl- sort of flying and everyone, it was becoming more prevalent and, you could have all the apps and mags and all, all this sort of stuff. It's just, I can only imagine now to watch like, three or four promotions a week. It's been such good fun. Just watching, knowing all the, who, who all the guys were and comparing the world champions and just being able to see pretty much everything. Did you get any AWA where you were? Was that, was that not, did that not reach over to New York? Uh, we got AWA on cable. At some point they, uh, worked with ESPN. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and you know, again, that's a slower paced product. Not just in the ring, but also in the, in the way they advance their storylines. And, and that's an interesting thing. Uh, the AWA and the WWF were probably the slowest paced television programs because their house shows were run on a monthly cycle and not a weekly cycle. So. Uh, yes. They, I keep, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. How is So we'll move forward now to the March 31st, 1984 episode of Mid South Wrestling, which is episode 238 on YouTube. And. Um, so, Al, I'm leaving you a lot here because this is a very dialogue-heavy episode. With I, I worked out there's one minute and fifty-six seconds of wrestling on this um, on this episode, which is quite remarkable. When the usual mo of this television show is six or seven short matches, but this is this is really unusual. In your experience of Mid South, can you remember any episodes that were quite like this one? Uh, other than an end of a year year in review thing where the, where the taping schedule was such that they didn't want to run a TV taping you know before the holidays um yeah other than that they're probably this might have the least amount of new entering action of any episode um yeah. i am not that big enough a nerd that i sit and time it out for every episode um <laughs> But I, uh, I'd be willing to bet that this probably had the least amount of any non-holiday airing uh, of the, the weekly television program. I am a nerd enough to time out. <laughs> so I have a lovely um, purple stopwatch with a little thing that I put around my neck. And my wife informed me, who's also in lockdown in the house um, earlier on, that I looked like a bad PE teacher, which I thought was a bit unkind. Um, so at the desk we have Jim Ross, uh, who's unusually on the left. We have No Boy Pierce, who's on ring announcement duty, and Jim Cornette on the right. And as soon as I saw Jim Cornette there, I thought this is just going to make my job so much more difficult trying to take notes on this because he just smashes out one-liners, sort of nineteen to the dozen. You just feel like you have to get down because they're so good. But luckily, he didn't hang around for too long. Um, so Ross sort of goes through that we've got Hacksaw Butch Reeve versus Terry Taylor again this week in the time limit draw last week. Um, and then Cornette asked Ross why he's so concerned with trivial matters, and he should be telling people that he is the manager of the best team in the world. He says he also understands there's an advert out for a new colour commentator, Bill Watts, not fulfill his commitments. Um, so Ross says that we will have an update on Bill Watts, Cornette says that he could fill the role as colour commentator, and they go back and recap the angle with the Midnight Express Tag Team Championship celebration from a couple of weeks ago, which ended up with Cornette's facing the cake, and the later bit where Watts lays out Cornette. So what did you think of this early sort of setting the scene here that clearly they're going to be advancing 
this angle, and that and that is really the focus of this episode. Yeah, and and this sort of goes back to what I said a little bit ago about how you feel like you 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 know a lot happens during a given week of TV, but at the same point, if you if you missed last week's TV or if you missed the last two shows, within four minutes you're caught up to speed, and and this is. You know, they're, they're, they're making sure the viewer understands that this is very important. And then that's the thing about Bill Watts and Mid-South was, you, you know, they pay, if you're a longtime fan, if you're a regular watcher, it, it pays off and they, everything builds on each other. So they're really setting the stage for what's about to come. Because originally, you know, it seems like, all right, well, they're setting up a feud between the Rock and Roll Express and the Midnight Express. Cool. I want to see that. <gasps> Bill Watts just slapped Cornette. This is now, you know, this is something big. Bill Watts, you know, owns the company. He was a former wrestler. I, I recall he used to be a champion. Are they, you know, are they going to, oh my God, now the Midnight Express beat him up. What's going to happen next? They've now all, all of a sudden very quickly got you up to speed on everything that's going to happen. And your mind is racing with the possibilities, but this, at the same time, if you are a real wrestling fan, you know what's happening next. You know this is going to lead to Bill Watts coming out of retirement. And you just want to be right. You, you are saying to yourself, Oh my God, Watts is going to get back in the ring. How cool is this going to be? And so now you're just staring, you know, you're, you're right up against the TV, nose touching it, hoping and praying that, that they're going to deliver what you think they're going to deliver. I mean, this, this must have been a real big deal because I understand that what, that Watts has been probably retired and not broken that for some time. So oh, I, I, you know. Deal, yeah. His last in-ring appearance in any fashion uh, as a you know actual wrestling match was November first, nineteen eighty-one. So wow. we're not quite two and a half years, but all you know, uh, two years and four months. And he only had a handful of appearances in nineteen eighty-one, uh, and uh, same thing in nineteen eighty. So, uh, and and that those might not have even been based on TV angles. Those might have just been special things just for certain house shows. So to the average fan watching at home, yeah, he's been retired for years. You don't have a date of his last match in November 81. Do you? November, I believe it was November 1st. Uh, November 1st. November, yes, November 1st, 1981 in Lake Charles against Ernie Ladd. Wow, because 23 days after that, I was born, interestingly enough. So that's, uh, that's interesting timing for Bill Watts' last Last match. So that is a significant amount of time. That isn't a bog standard wrestling retirement where someone comes back very soon thereafter. That's a, you know, he's properly, did, did he, did he lose, did you know, if he, did he lose a retirement match or something or, or was that, did he, did he just say, I'm I, retiring and that was I it, don't like believe so. I, I, I believe at, at that point enough, uh, he realistically, you know, was running the business and I think it was just the, the realization that, uh, yeah, he can't do both. He had been, uh, the more he got involved, because even before 1979, he was a partial owner of the territory, and he certainly spearheaded uh, a lot of the expansion into Louisiana and Mississippi. And if you look at the one of the, the best sources I use for data is WrestlingData.com. Um, it, it's difficult to navigate, um, but uh, at, at some point you can find how many matches a wrestler had every year. It's sort of listed by year. And you can see from the mid-70s on, it's uh, not even gradually, but rapidly decreasing as he gets more and more involved behind the scenes. So I okay. don't believe he lost a loser-must-retire angle. He may have gone out with a, you know, maybe not use the R-word, but sort of said, you know, uh, you know, it, uh, 
built up to a series of big matches in some of the bigger towns um, prior to this. But yeah, but he stayed away for a while. And of course, he didn't stay away because he's on TV every week. So what a great way to, you know, very easily get fans back interested in you because it's not like it's not like you come from out of nowhere all of a sudden. It's they've seen you every week on TV. They know you're a promoter. They know you're a former wrestler. They also know you're a no-nonsense guy. And when Cornette comes in with these shenanigans, well, who better to shut him up than uh, Bill Watts? So do we know why? I'm, I'm sure, uh, you know what? I need to read his book really badly because I feel um, a pretty shoddy job presenting this podcast without having read his book. But do we know why he came back? Was was this to part the territory? Because I know that they just had the influx of talent from Memphis with Bill Dundee coming in as Booker. So was this just a way to, you know, build business back up with some new stars and, and still Bill Watson and get some, draw some big houses with a whole new cast of characters? I, I think so. I think ever, ever since Bill had taken over Mid-South, he sort of went away from the traditional booking of house shows, which is you don't really build to special events that uh, Oklahoma City always has the same level of talent on, on each card week to week. And Watts had been moving away from that. And, and ever since they started running the Superdome and, you know, they shocked the wrestling world by how well they drew the first time out of the Superdome and they ran that quarterly. And I think when Watts took over, he sort of, restructured how he booked house shows. And there are several periods of time between 79 and 84 where there's a week or so run where he's got Andre and Dusty and all these outside names coming in and they're running all the big towns. And I think this was just part of that pattern and and also Watts realizing that he's got gold in Jim Cornette and yeah, they might draw well. They were draw, they were drawing well against Magnum and Mr. Wrestling too. And they may very well draw very well against the rock and roll. But what can he do, um, to be huge? And that is not only him come out of retirement, but to call back, uh, Stagger Lee, who at the time had actually was, was working for Crockett. So, you know, obviously it's Stagger Lee, um, but we all know who it is. And JYD hadn't been there for, uh, uh, you know, hadn't been there full time. So it's not just bringing Watts back, but it's also bringing JYD back. His dog had lost the Loser Leaf Town match to Wrestling 2, uh, in, I think, March 12th was the date of that. So he had been gone for a couple of weeks. So they bring back Staggerly. They bring back Watts. They have the Superdome scheduled and, and they sort of, you know, laid out the house show schedule in such a way that when the TV airs in each market, uh, he's running the biggest venue, you know, that weekend with this loaded up house show. And it's also a way to get fans in the door to see Magnum TA, Terry Taylor, all these young new stars, as you alluded to. Um, it's one thing to watch them on TV, but yeah, to get them out there um, to see Watts, but then introduce them to all these new faces. It, it's a great way to sort of build for the future. Because I'm really interested in, uh, not to skip too far forward, but the, the Superdome show was, was one week after this aired. So presumably on the Saturday after this, um, there would have been a show, um, that would have taken place, certainly would have been taped before the Superdome show. So I presume they carry on the build up, but actually. Well, uh, well, here's, here's the thing. This, and I don't know the exact schedule, but, uh, this tape, did not air in every market on March 31st. Right. Okay. Um, okay. And, yeah, yeah. and I, I, you know, I try and find, we call it the bicycle. 
um, in how the tape circulated through the towns. I don't know the schedule. I think that air date of March 31st refers only to Shreveport because it was taped uh, on March 28th. It was taped a few days earlier in Shreveport, and I think it aired first in Shreveport. And it's interesting to note that the last Stampede match did not take place in Shreveport. So I think the April 7th Superdome show, I would guess the, uh, the TV aired that day in New yes. Orleans. Yeah. And if and then if you go forward and look at the 15 um, house shows where this match took place, it almost certainly has to be based on when the TV aired. Because I, I don't want to skip ahead, but I did watch episode 239, mm. and they all, you know, they don't really talk about this unless there are local house show promos that we don't see on the master tape. It sure seems like this was the angle that um, paid off as soon as possible on these house shows. Yeah, it's, it's, I understand from a, another guest I had on who, um, who watched quite a lot of this locally that they did, they did have the local interviews. But I mean, I guess back then you would have had, I don't, again, there's, there's, Depending on where you're sourcing the show from, the dates seem to be different. And, and as you just said, I, I guess that's because they aired in different markets. But I think that the, um, the WWE Network dates, I watched the YouTube version, I think they're right based on a Saturday airing, which I think in, in Truthport and, and maybe some other markets on there was, was right. But I, want, I wonder if on that day, um, in market, in New Orleans, for example, if it aired on the Saturday, whether they were, whether they, well, I mean, I guess that you back then you would have had a walk up crowd. So maybe there were some local promos to get some people out of their houses to, especially if it aired in the morning. But it's all, it's, this is the thing that's, that's one of the kind of wonderful things looking back on some of the, some of this stuff. It's not easy to find out some of this information about, about sort of what went on. And, and I, and I don't think that any of these Superdome shows that I can find so far have got any, any tape. Um, I don't think, I'm not sure any of them appeared on anything. I've not seen any Superdome shows appear on any of the shows that I've watched so far. Um, I don't know if you know any different to that, but it's, it's just interesting the way that this, this, this business model was that these things weren't shown. Um, and sometimes around the, the taping schedule around these shows, it's just a bit awkward in terms of the timing. It's, it, yeah, it's, it's hard to understand if you are only looking at how WWE and All Elite and, and other current promotions operate, but wrestling matches were not meant to be, uh, evergreen, if, if you know that, that term. Um, yes. It, it, and to me it was, and I think the first wrestling match that was put together to be watched later was Savage Steamboat WrestleMania 3. Mm. I think they set out to have a match that could be watched and analyzed for years to come. But the whole idea was um, what Watt did. He ran these hotshot angles and he ran them on TV as close to possible as when the house show ran. So if they ran April 7th in the New Orleans Superdome, I would be willing to bet that that this episode of TV, even though we have it dated as March 31st, that it aired in New Orleans on April 7th and that it aired in Houston on April 14th and that it aired in Monroe, uh, Louisiana, Oklahoma City and Tulsa the weekend of April 21st and April 22nd uh, right, and okay. so on and so forth based on when the house shows are because the whole idea, your hardcore, you know, the fans that are going to come to the show anyway, they'll buy their tickets in advance, but the walk up is is based on these angles and, and Watts yeah. was just a master at 
making you say, oh, my God, Bill Watts is coming out of retirement. And if he loses, Cornette gets control of the company. But if he wins, they're going to put that little sissy boy in a in a dress. I have to. Oh, and oh, it's tonight. Honey, watch. Call the sitter. Get the kids. We're going to wrestling. This is he relied on that just basal response that don't don't think about it. He drills this in your head for 60 minutes. And if you miss out. Tonight at your local house show, you're going to miss this payoff. So, did you say that they, they took these this card on the road after this in terms of to other other places? Yes, on, on the TV. Yeah, on the TV, it makes it sound like it's one match, but it's one match that happens in 15 different towns. Uh, oh, wow. and, okay. uh, I, I've got the whole <laughs> schedule. So, uh, you want to go through it? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, so, April 7th, New Orleans. April 12th. Biloxi, Mississippi, and I should say all this information comes not from my research, but from Jim Cornette's excellent record keeping and his now out of print book, the uh, Midnight Express 25th Anniversary Scrapbook, because he took he kept meticulous notes of uh, the Midnight Express and their matches. So April 7th, New Orleans, April 12th, Biloxi, Mississippi, April 13th, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, April 14th, Houston, April 18th, Greenville, Mississippi. April 19th, Jackson, Mississippi. April 21st, Monroe. April 22nd, Oklahoma City in the afternoon and Tulsa in the evening. April 26th, Lake Charles, Louisiana. April 28th, Alexandria, Louisiana. April 29th, the afternoon in Hammond, which may have actually been in Laranger, which is a small town outside of Hammond. Um, And then that evening in Lafayette, Louisiana. May 5th in Little Rock, and the final event of the last stampede was May 10th in Beaumont, Texas. So from April 7th to May 10th, uh, 15 matches. And meanwhile, Watts wasn't working the other nights, but the Midnight Express were often working other nights against rock and roll or other teams. But this was the last stampede towards, it. in all likelihood, it's the 15 largest cities in the territory, and it set gate records in almost all of them. It did not set a gate record in New Orleans, and it did not set a gate record in uh, one of the other, one or two of the other towns. But in most every town, it had the largest uh, dollar box office in Mid-South Wrestling's history. Because actually, thinking about it, though, I, did they say the Superdome at any point during this? I didn't think nope. they did that. No, he said one match, uh, you know, I'm coming for one match and it's going to be me and his dagger or, or, you know, against the Midnight Express. Yeah, they, uh, they made a point not to say it that way. Wow. So I guess, would you know if you were in one of the other, say you're Oklahoma, would you know that this had taken place anywhere else or would you not? The business model of wrestling for decades was based on the fact that you didn't. As we get into the eighties, you you people are getting there if you're reading the after mags and you're seeing you know the same lineups that are happening in over all these shows that you know they they did a great job of on tv of making you feel that your town's house show was an integral part of the whole thing but they're making vague references to other towns and even though they make you feel like the wrestlers you're seeing on tv are the best in the world you still are aware that there's a world heavyweight champion, that there's Dusty Rhodes, that there's Andre the Giant. So they're walking that line of drilling down that what's going on tonight in your local arena matters. 
but they're 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 doing it in every other town as well. And there are some there are some TV markets, especially as cable TV becomes popular in the mid eighties, where you're seeing stuff from these different towns. There are some TV markets where if you live in sort of the middle, if you live in a small town in between two bigger cities, you're getting both TVs. And so in the mid eighties, we're starting to see where fans are realizing that their town isn't the only one getting this match. And, and that's how, um, that's how wrestling changed and how the booking strategy for all these territories changed drastically as we go into 86 and 87. It's a real, it's, a, it's really probably the most fascinating time around, around this time. This, this is why I started the first I think it's just such a incredible time where just everything that was known in a certain way was just completely changing. Um, so where are we? So we, we recap the Cornets, um, facing the cake angle and then back at the desk, Cornette tells Ross that he never wanted to see that again and that when his mother buys Mid-South Wrestling, that footage will never air again. I just, every time Cornette mentions his mother, it just cracks me up. I just think he's so, so good. My, my guest last week, I think he mentioned he's 22 when he was doing this. I mean, it's just phenomenal, phenomenally good, Cornette. Um, they then recap, uh, Midnight Express attacking Watts, um, while he was interviewing Hacksaw Butch Reed. And I thought Watts did a great job of selling this and he just looked totally out of it. Well, what did you think of the Watts sell job here? It was great. Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, uh, this was Watts had, I, you know, I don't think Watts had ever been, you know, manhandled, uh, before as, you know, after he stopped, you know, after he left the ring. This was, you know, this was huge. This was, you know, just like back in the day, they always made a point, you know, don't lay your hands on the referee unless we tell you to because we want to make sure it means something when it happens. You know, I, this was, you know, this was uh, the big thing. This was Watts, you know, getting his butt handed to him. Yes, it was a two-on-one sneak attack, but it still, they had thought for years, they had thought Watts was this, you know, was the, the top dog, the big former football star and, and this and that. And, yeah, to see... Particularly two smaller guys, because by the standards of the time, the Midnight Express are smaller than a lot of the Mid-South wrestlers. So, yeah, this is a, a big shock and a, and a big thing, and I think Watts did a great job. Yeah, I, I thought I thought he was really, really good here. He, he just um, appeared to be completely out of it, didn't he, which I, which I thought was really, really great in, uh, in the circumstances with this. So, um, basically, Ross says... Um, Back at the desk, Cornette says that this was something that was more to his liking, and if anyone touches him, they should sw- that his Midnight Express would swoop down on them like a pair of vultures. Um, and Ross says that Cornette is not dealing with a normal human or athlete, and he says that for a long time, Cowboy Bill Watts was a top contender in the world, and that he settles scores mentally and physically. Um, so we then cut to an interview with Ross and Watts. Um, Ross says that what happened last week was totally uncalled for, and Watts wants to make a statement. Um, Bill says that sports and life are out of control. He says that when he retired, he retired by choice, not because he had to. He's no stranger to lumps and bruises, and then he knew when he got into pro wrestling, he had to be able to lose, and he had to be able to win as well. He says he kept his check, his temper in check for two years, but they insulted his family. He's not going to apologize for his opponent. He said a fine doesn't work because his mother would pay it. Beating him up, everyone knows he can do that. He says he wants to humiliate him one last time and one last stampede. Cowboy Bill Watts back in the ring, and he wants to humiliate him so much that he would never be able to show his face again. Um, so what do you think of this, this Watts, this initial Watts promo? So we get, we get two in quite short order here. And uh, what do you think of this first one? Yeah, again, this is, this is Watts' specialty is, uh, you know, 
making the situation seem more real. Yes, it's one thing when these athletes beat the crap of one another in the ring or when active professional wrestlers brawl around ringside, but this was an attack on a businessman, on a, on a retired man. It, it's not the same thing. And, um, and also to tug at the heartstrings of the fan, bringing uh, Watts' family into it, because the whole impetus for the slap was when uh, Cornette referenced uh, Joel Watts, Bill's son. Yes. Um, yeah. and, and and at the same time, tying the whole Jim Cornette and his mother thing and, and making it part of the story that just finding him doesn't teach him anything because his mom pays it. And he wants he wants Cornette to learn the lesson. He wants Cornette to pay for what he did. And, and Watts was just a, a, a mastermind at taking the personality traits of of these people that already existed and weaving them into this story and, and making this seem like this wasn't a typical match. This wasn't even a typical coming out of retirement match, that this was even bigger than that because it was personal, because Cornette involved my family, and, you know, and, and this is not sports. This is real life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, at the desk, Cornette says that one man, uh, no, no, no one man can do anything to Midnight Express. And they then throw to a break. Um, but then Ross says after the break, the cowboy bots, w- cowboy Bill Watts will be here. And then Cornette amusingly says he has to phone his mother and then he leaves. Um, so Watts is now at ringside with Jim Ross. Um, I thought it was just, it's a tiny little bit odd that they did back to back similar interview segments here. Um, but Watts starts going over what was said in the first interview. Um, albeit he gets a really big reaction from the ringside crowds. It's clearly they're, they're into this big time. Um, what says that he's saved in shape, but he's not in shape to do a long campaign, which is interesting given the fact that we've said that he's done, he goes on to 15 matches, which I guess must have been quite a physical. I don't know how, how long any of these were, but to do that, that is quite a tough schedule that you went through. I mean, especially for someone that's not wrestled for the best part of three and a half years. So yeah, inter- interesting. That he was able to sort of put this together. I guess he knew what was happening and probably trained for it for a while. Um, so they say, they said, what said that he needs a partner? So they took a trip to, is it Wadesboro, Carolina? Wadesboro, North Carolina, yeah. Wadesboro, North Carolina, to talk to someone. Um, and in the background, you can see JYD doing arm curls standing outside in the field with some trees. Now, I must be honest, uh, did you watch this on the, on YouTube or did you watch the uh, WWE Network version? I watched the YouTube version. So I really, my hearing's not the best at the best of times, but I really struggled to, to actually pick out some of, some of the dialogue here, um, especially when the music was playing. Um, so please, please jump in if there's anything I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm missing here, basically. So um, what says that he's sure that JYD is surprised that he's there, but he's got some things to talk to him about, and he asked JYD to turn the music off, which I, I thought was funny. For some reason. I don't know why I found that amusing. Um, what says, I've got some problems, brother, and I need to talk to you. The Midnight Express and Cornet really worked me over. Um, JYD and him have known each other a long time, and there's only one person he can trust. Um, so they talk about the angle when JYD was blinded by the freebirds. I thought it was a nice touch and how Watts came out to help him. Um, I presume that's a pretty, pretty big deal. Because uh, I understand that JYD played that pretty seriously, didn't he? He was, he was off TV for a long time. Um, and I think locally he didn't go out or anything like that. And Watts paid him to stay at home while this was happening. Correct. Yeah. So that, that, that's, um, that's sort of kayfabe at its finest there, really. Um, I, I don't know if you recently the interesting one. I, th- I think this came up when Dean Ambrose, uh, I shouldn't call him Dean Ambrose. John Moxley um, had the eye thing in AEW, and he did the a couple of New Japan tours with the eye patch on, and was wearing it in the airport and stuff. And it was nice actually that a wrestler was taking an angle seriously. I thought I thought that was a really nice touch. And, and you know, 
that's not a huge thing, but I think that it just 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 helps to enhance severity of a situation. Um, so JYD then says he he does know someone who uh, basically JYD is saying here that he can't turn because he doesn't want to break his word. And when he lost that match to Mr. Wrestling Terry, he was going to be away for ninety days. Um, but then he he says he does know someone who's real nasty and he might be able to help him. Um, again, I found this a little bit tough to hear. Um, but JYD amusingly says he doesn't care for him too much and he's real nasty. Um, and then he, he mentions J, uh, Stagger Lee, and um, they go on to explain this further, but that's the moniker that JYD went under in 1992 after lo- losing a loser leaves town match to Ted DiBiase, as I understand. So I presume that was a pretty big deal at the time when he, when he came back and they show a clip of this, um, just after this segment. But that, I, I guess that was quite big when, uh, when he came back. Yeah, that was a, a big angle. And of course, it's been done before in wrestling, the babyface losing in the loser leave town match and coming back after the mask. But, um, they had, but they had always, you know, uh, it, it's always done with a wink and a nod to the fans. But they said that Stagger Lee was the guy, the, the one guy who could beat, you know, JYD in street fights when they were growing up. Yes. Um, yeah, so they, they can, they continue with that. Again, all the fans know. And that, and that's what makes it funny you know, to me. Uh, you know, it's one thing, this is to, you know, this is a wink and a nod to the fans where you sort of break down the fourth wall just enough to say, this is a, this is a joke and you and I are in on it, but don't tell the bad guys. Yes. Whereas opposed yeah. to nowadays, a lot of sports entertainment is breaking down that fourth wall in the opening spot of the first match and then sticking your head through it the whole show. And that to me is the difference between pro wrestling and sports entertainment. And John Moxley wearing the eye patch wherever he goes is pro wrestling. Yes, I agree. And actually, um, as kind of eighties, this was, uh, and not in a necessarily a bad way. I do think they stayed the right line, the right side of the line here. As in, as accurately say, this is a little bit tongue in cheek. This is, this is your, you're as an audience member, you're, you're on the baby face side. And actually, they did. I think they did say the right, the right side of this. Um, so back from break, um, it basically cuts to Jim Ross trying to find Stagger Lee, but he's had to put a purple blindfold on, which I found quite funny. Um, and then he eventually makes Stagger Lee, and he says that's, that's close enough, but he can remove his his, his eye mask. Um, and Ross says he's walked a long way to try and find him. Um, and Lee says that Joe Idea owes him money. I just thought stuff like that is such a nice touch. Like I just thought that was great. What do, you, what do you think of Stagger Lee and uh, Jim Ross's interaction here? Uh, you know, again, it's just it's just it's just a fun little wink and nod, and, yeah. and and it's also done just enough so that if the heels are watching this on TV, they can't prove beyond a shadow of a doubt. It, it's they, they they give you just enough rope to make you see on your own that obviously this is what it is. But they also, for example, they don't have him lift his mask and wink at the camera. You know, yes. they, they, yeah, they, yeah. they tell you every, they do everything they can aside from actually proving it to you. So that way the heels have plausible deniability. They, they know it's him, but they can't prove it. And by Jim Ross having, having to wear the blindfold, uh, again, and a wrestling fan in 1984 that believes this stuff, this way Cornette and the Midnights can't kidnap Jim Ross and torture him into revealing the location. Yes. Because Jim Ross doesn't know the location because he was blindfolded. That's a very good point. Yeah, I understood that. That's a very, very good point. Um, so Stagger Lee uh, basically accepts the proposal and then kicks Ross out, which was quite funny. Um, and back to the ringside uh, with Ross and Watts. And Watts says he's had the pleasure of introducing Lee once when he faced Ted DiBiase and they cut to a clip on November the 3rd, 1992. 
Um, in the room, there's a banner with Esli, Staggerly, and out comes in full body costume and mask. Um, Staggerly, and he beats Ted DiBiase in very short order here. Um, so we, there, we then get a video package of Bill Watts set to either Tiger. Um, and he's shown in a match with Terry Funk, though, and identifies NWA world champion at the time. Then Killer Carl Cox, brass knuckle champion. And what was that? That, I tried to look this up before we, um, before we got started. I was, I ran out of time, wasn't looking in the right direction, but I do recognize that title somewhere. I couldn't recall where it was, where it was from. Do you, do you know much about that championship that Killer um, Carl Cox held? The brass knucks title was a title and ever, and lots of different territories had a version of it, but it uh, was not, it wasn't a consistent thing. This was every now and then if they, they, they would bring it back into play. Um, and, and basically the matches were held, you know, with, with, with a tape fist. Um, and oh, so that, yeah, um, yeah. but yeah, it was, it's not a consistent title that's defended as regularly as the North American title or the TV title or the tag team titles, but whenever it felt appropriate as a way to build up a new heel or a way to add some stipulation to a main event series, they would just dust it off and bring it out of the woodwork. Okay. Then they cut to Bill Howard. I don't, I don't know Bill Howard. Do you know much about this, this guy that's shown next uh, to the champion? He wrestled uh, all around the country. Um, often was not a, a pushed entity. Often was around the mid-cards or in later years early on in the card. But just like anyone else from the time, these were guys, they were... they made a living as a professional wrestler. If I, I, you know, I recall Howard uh, had a good physique, uh, which is probably why they chose him. Um, they then don't identify the next two individuals, but show um, Watts beating them with his big running body slam. Um, and then back to ringside after the video package finishes, Watts says, thanks for the memories, but getting back to today, he and Staggerly are going to go up against the Midnight Express. And Watts pulls out a dress that he says belongs to Cornette's mother. No question from Ross as to why Corn- why. Um, Watts had a dress from Jim Connors mother. I mean, that would have been quite a twist here if if um, they'd gone that sort of probably WF attitude era, or maybe ECW route with uh, Watts and Connett's mother. But thankfully, they pulled away from that. Um, Watts says that there's going to be a stipulation in the match, or I think he said there's potentially going to be a stipulation in the match rather than definitively that might end up with Connett having to wear it, and then he pulls out the pacifier and diaper as well. Um, and he guarantees the match is going to be signed. It's going to be he's going the Cornette is going to be embarrassed fall at the end of it. So this was sort of twenty five minutes, uh, pretty much of the show completely devoted to this angle in the upcoming match, um, which is a real departure from the normal um, sort of short matches. But what did you think of this overall? I mean, they threw everything and the kitchen sink about getting this match over, didn't they? Yeah, and you know this was they had you know they had a big series of, of matches planned. They anticipated it would draw well. And when that happens, you have to give it the proper attention. And, and so what they did with the dress and the pacifier and all this, the stipulation was different in each of those 15 towns. Oh, um, brilliant. And, okay. That makes complete sense. Yeah. I have a feeling, well, I, uh, when I say it was different in each of the 15, it rotated between those three options. And I have a feeling that if two towns where they ran this match were, close to one another, they made sure that the stipulation was different. Um, I know Lake Charles is reasonably close to Houston and and, re- and very close to Beaumont. So I have a feeling, even though the shows there might have been weeks apart, they made sure the stipulation was slightly different so that if fans came to both, yes, they're seeing the same match, but Cornette is being humiliated in a different way each time. So I presume that the babyface won 
all these every, oh yeah every single one of yeah them. every single one okay interesting interesting so um back after break now Boyd Pierce in ring to announce our first match uh, Mr. Wrestling 2 is announced first um, and 2 tells Pierce from now on he wants to be referred to as just Mr. Wrestling um, he's always been number one he always will be um, again not I don't, I'm not sure what spoiler rules are, there are for um, wrestling that took place 36 years ago, but interestingly on those cards, um, Magnum didn't beat Mr. Wrestling 2, which I, I found quite surprising. I, I don't know where the story goes after this. Um, but yeah, I, I thought that was, that was quite a shocker when I noticed that on the, on the Superdome. Presumably that, that ran through for the other, other shows as well. Yeah, well, well, 2 was the champion. Two had just yes, won the yeah. North American title, yeah. so they they couldn't have Magnum win outright. And and I think you know a lot of times house shows are put together if if they know the main event is ending with the babyfaces winning, then one way to put together a show is to have heels winning underneath. Yes, that makes and, sense. and getting the fans angrier and angrier uh, until finally they they get the big happy in the end, and and it. Uh, you know, the, the theory is it could lead to an even bigger pop when the faces win the main event. And sometimes you go in different directions. There are lots of shows where the baby faces, you know, win outright the whole way. And then maybe the heels win the main or maybe the faces do. Again, th- they do it. But what I've found, and we talk about how I want to create statistics, wins and losses in pro wrestling don't mean what they mean in other sports. And if, if you took wrestlers, all wrestlers in all history, based on what we know, and ranked them by win-loss records, yes, Bruno, Anoki, so forth, so on, are going to be at the top, but there's a babyface bias. And that two evenly slotted guys, one a babyface and one a heel, the babyface tends to have a, a greater win-loss record. So, Knowing that more often than not the baby faces win, they got to tweak that formula up every now and then. And I believe in the case of two and Magnum, this was a fresh feud, so they were probably waiting to build to a later payoff when Magnum would finally get to win. Yeah, and actually the um, the Magnum TA and Mr. S2, I think the feud has been, it's been fantastic. I thought they got to a point where they 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 just about teased on the brink of not pulling the trigger early enough on it, and then they pull the trigger the week afterwards. So I think that's been just just been fantastic. And Mister Wrestling too, um, to have the mannerisms that he does with a mask on is just pretty phenomenal. Because you can't say facials. Well, I suppose you can, but his facials are unbelievable. But he's got a mask on. Just his whole body language is just. I just think he's been so impressive as as a, as a kind of a baby face tweener and then fully into a heel it's, it's just been so good so in this one um, Mr. Wrestling 2 is up against Mike Jackson and I, I did wonder he gets you think he gets a massive reaction from the crowd and I was thinking is this a sure I've seen this Mike Jackson guy before I don't even know what's going on here but then Magnum TA makes his way into the ring and it's clear that the reaction's for him um, and then Magnum talks with Jackson who then jumps out of the ring and Magnum explains that Jackson's agreed to step aside and let him take his place um, two calls back Pierce and says he's not going to wrestle this man as he's not signed a contract to. And then Magnum's not on the mic says that two has taught him a lot of lessons. And there's one lesson he taught him real well and he slaps two to a big reaction from the crowd. And Ross in commentary says that Pierce has left the ring and two takes the mic again and says, let me tell you something, my boy. He wrestles, he re- and he says he wrestles who they say he wrestles. He's not his own man, which I thought was an odd line. He has to wrestle who they tell him to. Um, T.A. said he's a coward who's hiding behind the title. Um, he then adds that if he beats him right there in the middle of uh, the ring, he'll leave mid-south and slaps two again. 
Two then waves it off and leaves the ring, much to the chagrin of uh, Magnum TA. What did you think about this one? And what are your thoughts on Magnum TA around, around this time and, and the years afterwards? Because it, it wasn't all that much. I mean, I think he probably had a couple of years left. Um, but he, um, he, he I, I just think in everything I've seen of him, he's just been so good. Magnum was fantastic, and obviously his career was cut short by an accident. But the amazing thing about Magnum is prior to this run in Mid-South, which started in 1983, he had never really gotten a push anywhere. He had been in, he had wrestled some in Vancouver and Portland and then some for Southwest. And he was in Florida for about two years and never really got out of the prelims. And there were some occasions where he was maybe a mid carter, um, and, and, and part of a tag team with, I believe, Brad Armstrong, but he had not really been a pushed guy. And the other thing was that he was in Florida in that role for two years, which is very rare. Usually guys, come and go in places, you know, for six months at a time. But from day one, Watts pushed this guy hard. And the way they built up the feud with Wrestling 2, it's just, it's simple storytelling. It's the, you know, the teacher-student, uh, the protege storyline that, that is as old as, as stories. It's a, the old, you know, as old a story as stories are. But it's just so simple and and it works and you know it's coming, but at the same time you're not sure that it's coming. And that's the great thing about wrestling is they can adapt. They can set the wheels in motion and let's say for whatever reason the fans just don't bite. Well, a good booker will then switch gears. Yes. Um, you know, the, uh, and, and, but in this case you're talking about why Magnum didn't go over here or why the build was timed a certain way. Perhaps they wanted that first run of house show matches between the two to be on the undercard of the last stampede matches. So perhaps they stretched it out a little bit longer than possible because they wanted to sync its timing up with the, with the main event and have it be, you know, a top supporting bout underneath. So a lot of times when they, like, you know, currently when the WWE or All Elite or any promotion has a pay-per-view, they have to time all of their angles out to, you know, peak at the same time. And wrestling didn't always do that. They just, they were able to change its peak based on how the crowd reacted to it or based on how ticket sales were. So in this case, they're telling a story and they're leading you a certain direction, but they don't have to pay off on it. They can always switch it up. Um, but in this case, the, the fans were biting and Magnum was a, uh, he was a heartthrob, uh, at a time when they had several other heartthrobs. He still stood up, you know, by and large above them. And yeah, they, they pulled the trigger on him and he has this big run in Mid-South. And then, you know, he goes to, uh, WCW and gets pushed, uh, fr- you know, right out of the gate hard. And then unfortunately his career is cut short before we can truly see what his potential was. Yeah, he's such a young guy, and I've made the point weeks and weeks ago. Um, and I don't know, you never know. I think another host said the same thing. I said something similar that um, it's almost. I think he's perhaps because of what happened. You look at him in a more fond way, where some wrestlers have got sort of negative connotations, and when you think of them, you think negative, even though they may have done some quite positive things. I think with Magnum you automatically think of him positively because of the tragedy that happened. Um, so I just think of him, he was, he, as I said, I've seen it a few times, boring myself saying it, but this guy was younger than the Ultimate Warrior was. He had the promo, he had the look. Um, he may have never gone to, to Vince, but he, he must have been a world champion, and he, I just thought the guy just was oozing charisma. Yeah, and, and, and he... Game. Uh, and remember, as we said, around this time, I was a young, rebellious team that was drawn to the heels more so than the faces. 
but I like Magnum. He was just he he was portrayed as a heartthrob babyface, but he was just gritty and tough enough that that the younger guys wouldn't be turned off by him. That they could get into him as well. Um, well, that's got, the old thing, isn't it? That yeah. The guys want to be him, and the girls want to be him, and I think right. that's the that's the ultimate babyface, isn't it? Yep. That's Steve. That's something called Steve Austin, right there. I think, uh, isn't it? In a, in a nutshell. And so we we're, we're thirty minutes into the show now. There's not not actually been any. And we haven't any, and we haven't talked about Mike Jackson, who is still wrestling. Is and, he really? Wow. And, yes, he is. I believe he's seventy two years old. If not, he's seventy for sure. And he wrestles indies around the southeast. He does topes. He's wrestled some for Game Changer Wrestling, and he's he's fantastic. It, it's absolutely. He is a national treasure. He, for a long time, he worked uh, uh, on TV for Georgia, and they always billed him as the Alabama junior heavyweight champion. Yeah, yeah. Someone told me about this um, on an earlier show, actually. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, um, I didn't connect the dots. So, so he's, he's been appearing on some of the game change shows and stuff, hasn't he? So, yes. yeah, that's incredible. Seventy-two years old. I mean, that's good. Good luck to him, Matt. That's good. I hope he's looking, looking after himself at the moment, though, not taking any. He's one that we're going to say categorically. Don't take any bookings at the moment. Just, um, just look after yourself. So yeah, we're we're um we're thirty minutes in, and there's not been any in ring action at all so far. So after the break, um, they recap the angle with Khrushchev and Volkov at the end of the Duggan and Masaito contest from the week before. Um, Ross calls the coal miner's glove deadly and says that Khrushchev nearly ended his career. Uh, nearly ended the career of uh, Hacksaw and Duggan over this. And now in ring, we have Nikolai Volkov, and he'll be going against Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Um, and these two get into it before the bell can sound. And there's a few rough exchanges early on, um, and Duggan hits him with a spear. And then after four seconds, Khrushchev and a, and a masked man hit the ring to attack Duggan. And the Rock and Roll Express and Terry Taylor come out to make the save. Uh, and then Hacksaw, Butch Reed, and Taylor then go at it on the floor, with Taylor getting the best of him and hurling Reed into the ring post. Um, so what do you think of this little segment here between, the, um, between Khrushchev well, Volkov and Duggan start off with, but then obviously Khrushchev and a, a new character debuting for on the side of the Russians here. Yeah, and the new character did not last long at all. Um, I, I, you know, I'd seen, and I don't think it was supposed to. I think it was just a thing that they did to keep Duggan away from the Russians uh, just for a little bit more from from the key Russians. Um, but this is, and this is one of those examples where even though. They have all the, you know, several baby faces come in and, and several heels to come in. They still understand who's feuding with who. And just because Terry Taylor comes in to help break things up and Butch Reed comes to break things up doesn't mean that Reed and Taylor still want a piece of each other. And so they have their little thing as well. Um, nowadays, one of my complaints about a lot of wrestling is when uh, they're, the he- a group of heels are attacking a baby face, why other baby faces aren't coming out to save him. So at the very least, Watts doesn't do that. He has the faces come out, but he makes sure that if there are still parties, other parties that hate one another, that they have their own interaction to forward that. And of course, the coal miners glove at this point, it's just, you know, it started in this territory as DiBiase's specialty, but at this point, it's just the the thing that the heels use uh, to get the advantage on the baby faces. I think it even comes into play later in this episode with Reed. Yeah, I completely agree with you about the babyface not being safe thing. And I think there's lots of, I know sometimes they use it as, a, they, they, they kind of forget it because they're like, well, this won't work if there's a save. But I think there is a way to do it. I mean, for example, wrestling at its core is supposed to be presented as much as possible as if this was a legitimate sport. 
So if in a legitimate sport, let's say Randy Orton and Edge, for example, big angle on Raw weeks ago, and Orton kills Edge. Now, Edge must have some friends backstage. It must be people, some people that like him or people that don't like Orton. So you've got two groups of people potentially there. No, none of those come out to save him. You've also got, maybe there might be a young and up-and-coming rest and think, well, actually, if I go and save Edge, I might get a match against Randy Orton in a high-profile position. And I think that wrestling loses something when there's not a bit of quality control to say, you know, what would this be if this was legitimate? And I think that probably should be at the core for most of the most of the stuff that goes on. I well, think, I think that, to, sorry, I on. think I think the guy code is that when it's one on one, no, you yeah. let them settle it like men. It's when it's a five on one when five, you know, when four of the heels buddies come out and join him in attacking Edge. At that point, yes. Baby faces yeah. should come out safe, but if it's if it's a one on one, yes. I mean, you're right. With the edge beat down, somebody should have come out there, and and it's a way, uh, you know, in in the territorial era, sending out a younger up and coming baby face is a great way to put a meaningful match on house shows until you get to the Edge Orton yeah. match. Um, you can have, you know, that guy going up against Orton and looking valiant in defeat, which still builds for the final in the inevitable Orton Edge showdown, but perhaps advances that baby face up a little bit so the next time he can, you know, be in people be like, oh, that's the guy that almost beat Orton. I want to see him. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So um, after the break, we are supposed to be getting Terry Taylor and Butch Reed um, take two in the TV title tournament. And um, ultimately here, though, um, Taylor's in ring. Reed comes out with a sling on his arm. Um, and he says, I, I don't want to wrestle this week. I want to wrestle next week when, when my arm is better. And Boyd Pierce informs him that if he doesn't wrestle, he's going to be have to, he's going to have to forfeit. And Reese doesn't want to forfeit, um, but he just wants to go on next week to wrestle. Um, and then eventually Reed pulls his arm out of the sling, tries to hit Taylor with the coal miner's glove on. Um, he misses the first shot, but then gets Taylor with it three times. Um, the ref is thrown out, and Ross is saying that Taylor is helpless. Um, and Taylor appears to be coughing up um, something um, from his mouth and does a great sales job here again until the Rock and Roll Express come out to save. Um, and then after the break, uh, Ross announces that Reed's been expelled from the tournament for his actions. Um, so this whole whole thing is a device to not have a clean finish between Reed and Taylor, which I guess is understandable at the time. Um, and ultimately, Terry Taylor will meet Crusher Kubitschow in the final um, on two weeks in two weeks' time. So, what do you think of this this angle to to get out of this semi final here? I think when we when we analyze it now, to me, there's a there's a significant not plot hole, but there's a significant uh, disruption of logic. Because this television title tournament had been built for weeks that it not only was for the TV title, but also for $10,000. Yes. Yeah. And, and an Olympic style medal as well. It's not yeah. That. Well, but, but for the money, basically what Reed does here is sets up Terry Taylor to attack him, knowing full well that it's probably going to get him disqualified from the tournament. And, you know, he's willing to do this to beat up Terry Taylor and knowingly forfeit $10,000. When we think of it in that aspect, it doesn't make sense. But also remember, the way this TV was, you you don't have time to think about it, uh, yes. and, and the way everything's yeah. thrown at you, and 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 the way you have just enough suspension of disbelief, you don't think about it the way we do when we analyze these thirty years later, week by week. So, to me, 
I don't like it, but uh, if I was a fan watching at the time, I probably wouldn't be thinking as analytically about it as I am now. But it's just weird that Reed was willing to sacrifice ten grand just to get his shots in on Terry Taylor. Yeah, agree. Um, so next up, we have a standby contest between Masaito and Larry Santana. Um, interestingly, and I don't know whether Ross just didn't like this this episode because there wasn't any wrestling on it, but I, I know he's been known over the years for, for saying how he feels in commentary. Uh, but he says it's been a bizarre and brutal hour on Mid-South Wrestling, and I thought it was, it was quite amusing. Um, he, I really didn't like Ito's red and green tights that are pretty vile. What, what did you notice, notice these, and what did you think? Um, yeah, I, I, you know, Ito, as far as the Japanese heels of the day go, he's sort of a lower on the list than, uh, you know, Mr. Saito and, and, and a lot of the others. Um, but, you know, this was... This was how the territories booked at the time. They their heels were often from foreign lands, and sometimes you know it's horrible to say, but sometimes the booker says, "Oh, we don't have any Japanese heels, so get you know who's available," and they just take whoever's available. Oh, we we need a Russian. Oh, we need a, an African American babyface. They, they had roles that were played, and they had stereotypes that were played, and and this is how they filled them. But I do want to talk about Larry Santana. Yeah, go ahead. Larry Santana, I am 99% sure Larry Santana is the same wrestler primarily known as Larry Santo, who was a uh, enhancement TV wrestler for WCW and for Smoky Mountain. But he also is the trainer of a good friend of mine, David Young, who, if you watch a lot of TNA back in the 2000s, was prominently featured on a lot of episodes of TNA. He also teamed with Rick Michaels as Bad Attitude, and they were the NWA World Tag Team Champions. And to take that a step further, David Young's son-in-law is uh, recent Evolve superstar Anthony Henry. Okay, interesting, yeah. Yeah, wow, that's that's so that's that's a little six degrees of Kevin Bacon to get you from yeah. Larry Santana to Anthony Henry. Wow, that is that is very Kevin Baconish. So that's that's incredible. So um, I thought Ito. This is this is a pretty stunning one minute and sixteen here because Ito just absolutely killed this guy. Like you know, like the pile driver hit Pucky, poor Larry Santana, and then he hits something resembling an insiguri, and then ultimately was the chop in one sixteen. This was literally it, he just. But he just smashed him with something, picked him up, smashed him with something, picked him up. And it was just a bit of a nuts 116, really. I don't think Larry Santana got a single offensive move in. Um, but that's, that's the ho- that's your whole, all of your wrestling on this episode. And that's 1 minute 56, as I said earlier on. Um, after this match, back to, back to Ross at the desk. And he says that, um, he wants to add a few things about the Cornet situation. He says he's known, um, Bill Watts for a long time and they show the Bill Watts package again which I thought was probably a bit much but again they're trying to push 15 shows to become clear so I understand why they're, why they're doing it um, after the package um, which is exactly the same as the one earlier on Ross says it's obvious that Cornet has a problem that his mama's money can't buy him out of against Cowboy Bill Watts um, he says next week um, they have Hacktouch and Duncan versus the Russian Invader the Rock and Wild Express versus Butch Reed and Bay Landell and he reminds us that the final of the TV tournament is in two weeks time and um, so that's the end of the episode. For me, and um, this was a bit of a strange one. I did, I understand completely, and more so now we've chatted about it, why they did this with such a big circuit to follow and such a big match to promote. Um, but it was a little bit odd that there was just no wrestling. Um, I thought the JYD Stagger Lee stuff was, was quite good, can be fun. Um, even though the production, I think probably more so now watching it than it would be at the time, made it a little bit difficult to follow. Um, what did you think of this episode as a whole? Clearly a really important one and going into important one of matches. 
you know, we can look at it now and, and not get it and not understand it, but the, the, you know, the proof is in the pudding, so to speak, and the results, um, speak for themselves that this angle worked. And, and, uh, it, it, and it's really interesting to note that a, you know, a episode that's light on new content led to, uh, the largest five week period uh, dollar-wise for this territory and its history, especially given that now we may be faced with, you know, similar scenarios. Granted, you can't pay them off with house shows because the empty arena TVs will have to lead to empty arena house shows. So uh, it's different. But again, we can look at this now and say, how the heck did this TV episode work? Uh, but the results are it set records. The last Stampede set records in at least 12 and maybe 13 of the 15 towns it was held in. Um, Jim Cornette, uh, he, he literally says in his book that um, he was ready to give his notice after the end of this run because he was going to be so exhausted. And then he saw his paycheck and he says, oh, maybe, maybe I'll stick with this wrestling thing for a little while. <laughs> He's got, oh, I think he actually has a photocopy of his pay stub for part of this time period. Um, yeah, he's got, uh, the first week of April, so the 3rd through the 9th, and then the 17th through the 23rd. So his payoff for the Superdome in 1984 dollars was $2,000. Um, and then, uh, in Jackson, he, the two weeks later, he got $1,000. In Oklahoma City, he got 1500 And then the next, the, later that day, and he worked Tulsa, uh, so he got 750 there. Um, I mean, they, they set records all over the place. Let's see where, um, where he ends it. Um, the 15 shows that comprised the last stampede grossed a total of $807,000 in 1984 dollars. Um, let me run really quick to Google and see if we can figure out what that is. I mean, uh, that is, that is big, that's big time stuff, isn't it? $807,000. Yeah, so that's an average, shows, yeah. out of 15 shows, that's an average of, you know, over 15,000 per show. Um, it's about a factor of two and a half. So 807 would be about $2 million today. Huge. Yeah. I mean, that's, 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 that's big time stuff. I mean, there's not too many, not too many promotions that are doing that in, um, in 15 shows now, um, which, which, yeah, like, I mean, especially when you think geographically what we're talking about here as well. We're not talking about, um, you know, a, a big, a, picking out certain big cities on the, you know, eastern or, or western seaboard kind of thing. We're talking about fairly local. I mean, I guess the furthest two towns, what would they be? Seven or eight hours drive between them, something like that here? Maybe yeah. longer. Yeah, yeah, the, so uh, the the whole territory from the northwesternmost part of Oklahoma, which would be Oklahoma City, of the towns they ran, to the southeasternmost part of the territory, which would be New Orleans. Um, yeah, it's a it's a long distance, but again, realize they don't have to make that trip in one day. That the way the the towns are are spread out, they drive a few hours most days, and and can often be home most days. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a fraction of the, you know, they couldn't just say, well, we're running New York and Chicago and Philly and, and LA and all the big cities. It was, what are the 15 biggest cities in our territory? And, uh, let's try and set records in as many of them as they can. And they didn't set a record in New Orleans because the original JYD Michael Hayes lights out match based off the blinding angle that you referenced earlier was the, held the record. 
and they missed okay. it by seven thousand dollars. I think they did one hundred and thirty six grand, and that match, which was in nineteen eighty, did one hundred and forty three. This, this has been absolutely fascinating. Oh, we must we must do this again. Um, I, I think that given the situation, we've probably got a, 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 all got a bit more time and we're going forward. So we'll try and get you on definitely in the next few weeks if, if you're up for that. And where can people find your your work in Charleston Territories and you on Twitter again? Just to remind uh, yeah, so there's a few places. So on Twitter, uh, my my Twitter handle is at Al Gets Wrestling, and Gets is spelled G E T Z. Um, my blog is chartingtheterritories.com. And if you're interested in, uh, the stuff I talked about earlier as far as statistics and wrestling, and you're so big a fan of wrestling that you want to look at a bunch of spreadsheets, well then I've got the blog for you, and that's chartingtheterritories.com. Um, like I said, I sort of look at this month in 1972, 1976, and 1980, and I keep it going forward. Also, uh, for our older, your older listeners, I'm on the Facebook. You can catch uh, me on, on the Facebook at uh, just do a search for Charting the Territories. We've got a little page there. But I post content to Twitter every day. Every morning I do an On This Day in History where I post uh, three cards, um, not always from the Mid-South era, but from the McGurk Territory uh, somewhere between 1959 and 1986. And I update my blog at least once a week. So I'm churning out a lot of content. It can be overwhelming at times. But uh, again, it's it's just an attempt to start a conversation about what kind of statistics we can create to evaluate pro wrestlers the way that we do baseball players or, uh, you know, fighter or participants in other sports, um, because it's something that's severely lacking. And, uh, and and there's just so much history out there. And that's why podcasts like this are so great that we can, uh, you know, that it's amazing that these episodes are still available and we can see what was going on in the wrestling world 35, 36 years ago in all these different places. It's fascinating. And, and the fact that you um, feel so strongly about it, that you, you picked a territory from a whole other country. <laughs> is uh, just a testament to how good Mid-South TV was at this time. And I think there are a lot of people who feel that 1984 Mid-South is the best, you know, full calendar year of television for any one promotion uh, ever. Well, I'm, I'm, I mean, to, to be honest, I I think Mid-South, um, in a way, uh, they didn't benefit from the long-form documentary treatment, I think because of the issue with tape library. And um, so, like the AWA World Class, obviously WCW was a bit different because that was uh, went on for a lot longer. But that's the reason why I find this so fascinating because there's just not that much known about this promotion. If you're from a certain generation of fans, if you if you weren't in the 80s and you, or you didn't grow up in the area, you had all these people that were superstars in the WWF. Literally, months, some in some cases months later, if not years, and um, this whole incredible and like so popular people that knew it and you still see tweets about it every single day on twitter with people especially now people are, are, are off but it's um yeah it's been a real pleasure going back and al i, I thank you so much for, for being on the podcast i just want to say to you i hope you family um you know stay safe and well and everyone listening you know follow the advice that's out there and i, I just wish everyone the best over these troubled times and hopefully um listen to us chat about wrestling for a couple of hours and take your take your mind off things um, for a short amount of time. But Al, thank you so much again. Um, I encourage everyone to check out um, Al's Twitter and the website of incredible work he's doing, and we shall definitely do this again soon. 
Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please head over to iTunes where you can subscribe and perhaps you'll even be kind enough to leave me a lovely five-star review, which would absolutely make my day. If you're interested in guest hosting, please contact me via the Mid-South Moments Twitter account, which is at MidMoments. And I look forward to speaking to you all again very, very soon. Mm -hmm.